0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today is another great day for me because I get to have one of my fantastic friends and colleagues join us here on The Caring Economy. Today's guest is Gwen Green, who is a career financial services rock star, in my view. She takes care of her clients in in private wealth management, uh, currently at J.P. Morgan, previously at Bear Stearns. And she has been one of the most soulful and engaged uh, community members I've known in my career, working with young people in particular, mentoring them, um, getting on all kinds of boards for next-gen leaders, and even has the career center at her alma mater, University of Rochester, named in her honor. So welcome indeed, Gwen Green, to The Caring Economy.
1: Well, thank you so much, Toby. It's a pleasure. I love talking about taking care of people who may not have anyone else to do it for them. So this is thrilling for me.
0: Well, you, you certainly exhibit that throughout your career and your life. Tell us a little bit about your own life, Gwen. How did you get where you got? And, you know, maybe not the the two-volume edition, but maybe more British edition, because you've accomplished so much in your lifetime.
1: You know, it's a good question. And I actually think back a lot and wonder myself how I, sometimes I pinch myself wondering how I got here. I grew up lower middle class in Westchester County, which almost sounded oxymoronic to me. But my dad died when I was young, and I had a mother who just made me believe there was nothing I couldn't do, and somehow that stuck with me. I'm not sure why, but I kind of struggled. I was able to get into the University of Rochester on loans and scholarships, and I always think a wing and a prayer, and from then on, I just figured, wow, if I made it here, I must be pretty good, and it, it, I always felt like I had the wind at my back. There was always something saying, you can do this, just figure out how to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think being a French major and existentialism sounding like the most exotic, romantic thing in the world made me really follow those philosophers. And the part I took away was it's on me. If I want anything to happen in my life, I've got to make it happen. And if I don't like the way things are, I have to affect change. And that's just been with me forever.
0: That is incredibly sophisticated and probably the best application of French philosophy I've ever seen. As also, I was a history and a French major in college. So, so good for you. So I'm not sure that
1: that's what they had in mind, but that's how I interpreted it.
0: No, that's probably true. Je pense donc j'existe, right? Oui, bien sûr. Uh, so tell us then, so there you are URI, you are and and then you start out on your career, how? how?
1: Well, you know, I majored in French literature because I did think that I'd be a teacher. That was sort of aspirational for women of my generation. I'd either be a teacher or a nurse or an airline stewardess, which a friend became, and I thought maybe she was right. And I couldn't get a job. You know, I graduated. New York City schools were on strike. Nobody would hire me, and I, I needed money. I had no money. Certainly, there was no family money, and I have loans to pay back. Mm-hmm. And so I just went to what was then called an employment agency. And they said, well, you could become a credit reporter at Dun Brad Street. And I'd neither heard of Dun Bradstreet nor being a credit reporter, but I thought then, this was the mid-60s, wow, being a woman in business, yes. what an amazing idea. Nobody else I knew was doing that. Mm-hmm. MBAs weren't talked about then. So I took that job, and that was back in 1965. And then that was kind of the beginning. I, I veered off in other directions. I, I used to think whenever I had a boyfriend in a field, he'd get me a job mm-hmm. and I'd make it work. I didn't have a career
0: path. I just wanted to keep moving forward in life. Do you think that most young people today do have a career path or they, they have a dream or an expectation that's a little bit crisper than yours may have been?
1: They do and it
0: worries me sometimes. Because I think
1: I remember back when they used to ask us in interviews, what's your 10-year plan? And you actually had to come up with a 10-year plan. And I've tried to convince young people, most of the ones I work with are in my field in finance, that you just have to get a job. Mm-hmm. Because you're going to start learning about yourself and growing. I mean, I think back now, I think had I been a French teacher, in my life would have had such a different trajectory. Not a bad one, but a different one. And I wouldn't have had the success in terms of how the world measures it and what i was able to do had i not come into finance at some point and i worry about that with young people i think they feel driven Mm -hmm. to map out their life and it doesn't make them as adaptable to change and i think what's always worked for me in life is i used to say the old yogi barrel line when you come to a fork in the road take it i now have (laughs) taken on as a mantra You know, it doesn't really matter. I've tried to tell that to kids. It doesn't matter which choice you make early on. Just make it work for you.
0: Make that be the best choice. Yes, absolutely. So, Gwen, how do you describe yourself today? What's your job?
1: Well, it's interesting. I realize that
0: my job is,
1: as you pointed out, financial advisor. So in the field of finance, I'm a commissioned salesperson and have been for 40 years. I haven't made a salary. That's just kind of what enables me to do the things I want in my life. I I have taken in a younger partner and I'm trying to slow down a bit. So I think what I am is a person who tries to make this a better world, one person at a time. I feel not just an obligation, but a deep desire to make everyone happy Mm -hmm. and to figure out ways that people's lives can be better, particularly those less fortunate. I think it's part of my mission in life,
0: particularly as I get older. Yes, well we write about the the purpose piece a lot in you and I both in our, our public speaking and in our writings. Um, I, I wonder so you've been at JP Morgan since since Bear Stearns was acquired. What was that eight, ten years ago now, I guess?
1: Yeah, uh, 12, 13 years.
0: Yes. Two thousand and eight. But most of your career was with Bear Stearns, right? As a as a broker or a financial advisor. Right. But you were really pioneering. I mean to start in that space in the 60s and the 70s. What was it like for a woman then? And are there are there still the same obstacles or different obstacles today and the same opportunities or different opportunities today? Great question.
1: I started actually at Smith Barney way back in the day, a firm that no longer exists. And I went through a training program and there were 20 of us, five women. And I was the only one who survived. Hmm. And I feel that, the field continues to be open to women but it's a tough business to survive in as a woman it's one reason i chose to be a commissioned salesman because i didn't want anyone deciding what i was Mm worth. i thought i'll decide that and if i do really well great and if i do badly again that's on me
0: but can you explain why you think those other women didn't make it um i think The
1: pressure is tremendous. I think women, and it hasn't changed. I think that women take everything personally. Mm. And I still do at this point in life. You know, if someone looks at me funny, I go home and spend the evening and the night obsessing about it. And if I think I can do something, I walk in the next day. It's happened so often you think I'd learn. I walk into the man Mm -hmm. and try and rework the conversation. I want to bring it back up again. And invariably the man doesn't even remember it. Right. So I think that we can be our own worst enemies. I, I'm intrigued, I listened to a panel of wildly successful women in engineering and they all talked about that same kind of thing. I think that women, it's one of our best qualities. We personalize things, we make it happen, but I think it's also an impediment to succeeding a business. And if you're in a business that's very fast paced with a lot of strong opinionated self-confident men
0: it can be brutal. It can still be brutal for me. It still gets to me. So uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, today we have Gwen Green on the Caring Economy. She is a pioneering financial advisor now with J.P. Morgan Chase, previous to Ferris Stearns, and way back before then, Smith Farney, uh, and also uh, a, a volunteer and a director of countless boards and organizations. Gwen, let's talk about the other side of that um, spectrum, if you will, that spectrum of caring. Those men who uh, were not necessarily, uh, didn't have the same takeaway from these conversations and moments with you, um, were what they were. What about those who were more enthusiastically behind you, had your back and really uh, helped you grow your career? Who were some of those mentors, if you will, or how did that work? Well, it's an interesting question
1: and I've tried to think about it. And all my bosses were men. I've never worked for a woman in my career.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, And I never learned to be a great boss because I really didn't have anyone whom I could relate to. I always felt that if I got the job done, I'd be treated well. And to me, it was almost a dollars and cents kind of formula. And as much as I tried to make it personal, that really wasn't what was going to get me there. It might get me in the door. And one thing I learned was don't ask for anything unless it will favorably affect the business and the firm. Mm-hmm. And so I learned to make my arguments. I learned not to make them about me, mm-hmm. which is my tendency. It'll help me, it'll make me better, but to make them about the business and the firm and why I brought value. And it's a lesson I try and teach young people in job hunting, where do you bring value? Because that's where you'll move ahead. Mm-hmm. So I would say the man who most profoundly influenced my career was Ace Greenberg. Wow. Head of the late Ace Greenberg, head of Bear Stearns, I knew him through charities. I thought the world of him way back in the day when Bear Stearns was alive and well. He would walk every trading floor every day and say, how you doing? How you doing? Awesome. And I just thought to me, that was the most aspirational thing. Learn how to treat people. Learn mm-hmm. to make them all feel important.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and that really was far more inspiring and helpful to me than anyone saying, oh, yes, you can have that account. You can have that money. You can do that trade. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that was just doing what had to be done.
0: Yeah, so Gwen, I like that concept of of your value add because I think we're in a moment now in COVID, and I'd love your thoughts or reaction to this, where um, the good news is people are getting a newfound or renewed appreciation for what quote-unquote matters, right? But risk being conflated, the purpose piece risks getting conflated with the business model. I I think that businesses need to be uh, considered of all their stakeholders. I've written about that but it doesn't mean that one's own values are the firm's or the company's values. And so I I hope that young people in particular, but all of us coming out of COVID, um, won't rush to uh, a short-sighted conclusion that, oh, they don't care about what I care about, therefore it's not a great brand. To the contrary, great brands don't necessarily have to share every value that we have, but they have to certainly overlap in the Venn diagram way with our values, right?
1: Yeah, and I would say, that's an interesting thought. And and what comes to mind as you say it is, and maybe figure out if your values are valid, introduce them Mm -hmm. because I think to me, the key to so much success in every part of my life is if I believe in something and I believe I'm on the right side of humanity, Mm -hmm. then I've got to fight for those values. Mm-hmm. So I think that if, 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 as you talk about often ESG values, but you know, human rights, human dignity, social justice are indeed very important values. And if your firm doesn't have a position, they're not involved, they're not promoting it, make a case or do it on your own using leveraging, frankly, whatever you can from your firm. And that's what I've always done.
0: So uh, I would also add to that, it doesn't have to be a fight. Sometimes these things are yeah. easy won, one, right? Because the pump is already primed to, to exactly go ahead. right. They just need perhaps younger, ambitious employees to put up their hands and say, hey, how about this? You know, as an- and I, uh, Sorry, go ahead. I agree, I'm
1: sorry. And I think it also goes back to, it may not be the way you want to do it, but you have to make the firm understand how it will ultimately bring value to them. Mm-hmm. Whether it's reputationally, financially, however, because you have to, you have to remember who you're talking to.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm thinking um, a little bit um, selfishly. Today's news I saw on LinkedIn was that Christie's, my former employer, has been. They are now the first auction house to make a commitment to uh, what's called a race to zero, starting being carbon neutral by 3030. And um, it was probably 15 years ago now where we, I pioneered the green auction or the bid to save the earth, which was the first carbon <laughs> neutral charity auction that benefited four environmental groups. And you know, it took a lot of my colleagues and my effort and it was fun and it was risk-taking and it, was, um, it would have been very easy not to do any of it. Right. So I'm so grateful to see now 15 or so years later that the company's embracing that genuinely because that's the state of the planet. We need to have these big brands yep. saying this matters and we're committing to it, so. Exactly,
1: and sometimes all you can do is plant the seed and that's okay. Yes. And count on next generations. One thing that excites me a lot is I notice that a lot of my kids and I call everybody I've ever mentored my kids who are graduating with degrees in financial econ or computer science are also incredibly focused on environmental affairs and they are seeking ways to combine that education with what matters so much to them and to the world. And we didn't know how to do that too well. You know, we were very single focused on kind of what our skill set was, what our major was, who we knew, what we could get. And they're saying, no, unless you do it, and unless this is part of the policy, I can't be all in. And I think they will push through that change.
0: Yes, here, here. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, stay with us. Uh, we have Gwen Green with us today from JPMorgan Chase. Uh, so Gwen Green, thank you again for joining us on The Caring Economy today. Uh, we've talked a little bit about your career journey um, and the so the 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 workday, if you will, but I wanna talk a little bit more now about your volunteerism and your board work and your activism, quite frankly. Um, why is the, uh, the Career Counseling Center at University of Rochester named after you?
1: Well, it's interesting. I, you know, I will give you both the sentimental reason and then the practical reason. Um, I, early on, was interested in students. It, it just was the part when I went on the board of trustees and they were assigning committees. I said, I want to be on student life. I care deeply. There are just other areas that I don't bring value to. I, I can't do internal audit and I can't do human resources and many other things, but I love young people, that's where the future is, or educating a generation of people. So I was always interested in that and then offering myself up. I remember at one point saying, let's do a panel of people who are in finance, but started with very different careers because it was before everybody wanted to major in finance and come to Wall Street. So I started doing that and it sort of grew. And then I started working with our Career Center, which quite frankly, didn't quite seem Up to the task. You know, it's a bit of a challenge in academia because academics rule. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So it takes some people with a real business background to say, okay, that is great, but we owe it to our kids and their parents to help them move on. And frankly, whatever they do will come back to us in some way. You know, we need to do that. So I got involved with the Career Center and then we were launching a capital campaign. And they came around to each trustee and said, what really matters? And I said, the career center. So interestingly, I structured a donation where they would name the director. He'd be the Gwen M. Green director. But when I told people, they said, oh, that's great. You've named the career center. I said, well, not exactly. I named the director. And then I remember going back to my (laughs) financial officer and saying, well, what would that cost? (laughs) And he told me, and I thought, you know what? In for a penny, in for a pound, and
0: I—I I
1: wanted it, and there were no other buildings at Rochester with a woman's name on it.
0: Is that still the there? There may
1: be married couples, but and I wanted future generations to know yeah. that I cared, that yeah. someone cared. So it was really the thrill of my life, and it remains. and And I've had them send me all the product with the Green Center on it, mm-hmm. so I can walk around with a sweatshirt that says the Green Center, and it's very thrilling to me. Good. The kids, that I meet students and I say, I'm Gwen Green and they say, the Gwen Green.
0: <laughs> How about that? Well, I'm honored to know you. Um, so do you, do you know if it's the only building still on campus that's named after women or have there been others since?
1: No, there haven't been. I'm, I hope there will be. I don't want to be the only one. I want to be the first one to encourage other women to do it but it'll happen
0: yeah. at some point. So, so uh, that's a perfect segue because I'm going to say they're, they're Gwen Green, she's the first. And that takes us to another organization, <laughs> that she's the first, that you've been very involved in all the way to being the chair of the board. Tell us a little bit about she's the first and, and what you've done there in the past.
1: You know, what? it's a marvelous organization. It was started by some 30-somethings who worked for a magazine and wrote an article about a school in Africa that some woman had started that was subsidizing high school students. And they built it into a nonprofit. I became the board chair several years ago. And what we do is we realize that the only way you're gonna achieve gender equality, particularly in low-income countries where it doesn't exist is through education. And it starts at the high school level. You know, in this country, we think about first-generation students at the college level, but you go to countries in Africa and South America, India, Nepal, and you have to get them away from whether it's Agriculture, or things that are far more serious and more devastating to women, and get them educated.
0: Yes, and also because education
1: is the key to everything.
0: Yeah, and also you know even devastating to the planet as well. We know uh, there's a, a writer, Paul Hawkins, who wrote a book, led uh, a letter project called Project Drawdown. It looks at climate uh, change and ways to counter it. And one of the, I believe, top ten um, secrets, so to speak, is educating women and girls. Because if you educate women and girls, the way they approach business, the way they approach their communities, it's more um, comprehensive and better for the planet, not surprisingly.
1: It's not surprising. And these women, I went to Guatemala to see our scholars. We don't don't do bricks and mortar. We provide the education. Mm -hmm. So we partner with schools that have done the bricks and mortar and we provide the scholarship money. And to see the difference in these young women to have their eyes open, to have them get an education, to realize the power, and to have their families understand it, and to see their young siblings saying, I'm going to high school too. And now we've been involved long enough that they're on to college and they're working and they're doctors and they're lawyers. Mm-hmm. And it's magic. And it's in places where they would never have that opportunity. You educate a woman, you educate a village, you educate a country someday. Yeah,
0: you, you really do. Change. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, again today, we have on the Caring Economy, Gwen Green, who is a career financial services professional. She was a pioneering uh, financial advisor in the 60s and 70s, now at Morgan and sort of the latter part of her career. Uh, I wonder, Gwen, if you're like me, where we'll never stop working because we love too much what we're doing.
1: You know, I was worried. I was worried about retiring. And a lot of that was just self-esteem. You know, if you're particularly in New York, the first thing people ask is, what do you do? You, do. Yeah. you know, and we're defined by our career. I remember my late husband had been on Wall Street for 30 years and he retired to become an artist full time. And I remember early on, he would say, well, I used to be on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. You know, it took a while till he could say, I'm a painter, I'm an artist and get that that was his identity indeed. And I realized that my identity is not the specific job I have. My identity is trying to make this a better world. Mm -hmm. And I love being busy. I mean, part of it is I can't stand not being busy, but I just think that the time I have left and the resources I have left are destined to help this world and help the people so much less fortunate who don't have what I have. So in some ways, I look forward to the freedom of not being responsible for a business, Mm -hmm. but being responsible for everything that needs me. I want to be one of those persons who no matter... Who calls and says, can you help out? I want to be able to say yes
0: and figure out how to do it. I think you and John, who was an amazing man and artist uh, and probably a great Wall Streeter as well back in the day. (laughs) um, You you are, I think really, you hold yourself accountable to your relationships. And I think that that's that's your gold standard and that's where you never disappoint. And that's, I think, a a good message for certainly our younger audience members, but even our more established C-suite executives who understand that you can't, You can only make one first impression. You can only cross the line once and then you're dead, right? I agree. And I think
1: you're absolutely right. And I think it's so important to be kind. The older I get, the more I understand there's never a reason to be unkind to anybody. Ever. Ever, ever. And there's a reason to be kind to everyone. To not measure if the clerk in the supermarket or the person who's pouring... I always ask the person who's pouring me water in a restaurant what his or her name is. I wanna call them by their name. I don't wanna just be waving them over. I I just think everyone deserves dignity and whatever role I can play will make their day just a little better. And that's the best I can do. I want them to go home thinking that lady was so nice to me.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm smiling because I I used to coach some of my colleagues, my more junior colleagues in um, in public relations um, with the most ornery of journalists just to kill them with kindness. (laughs) Like if you double down, find a way and try and think that, wow, something really bad happened to this person in their past is manifesting itself now toward me. It at least helps us compartmentalize an uncomfortable reality and get through. I agree.
1: And I thank people so profusely because I just think anybody, that's how you reinforce that kind of behavior in people. Yes. You know, I used to get annoyed when I was on the call with somebody in a country and I couldn't understand them and I'd get impatient. Now I think they're doing their best. Yeah. You know, take a deep breath.
0: And they're probably speaking English better than we speak their languages. <laughs> sure.
1: And they're trying so hard and I don't want to hurt them and I don't want to affect their career. And so I'm learning as I get
0: older that just being kind to people goes a long way. So Gwen, I, I want to ask you a little bit about the role of business in society to sort of philosophically or even more pragmatically. Um, what is your sort of view on the role of business in society? We've gone from um, the business roundtables suggesting that uh, the shareholder was the, the only focus to one in which all stakeholders are now meant to be the focus for a, a brand maximizing stakeholder return, so to speak. Uh, any views on these? newer? Well,
1: I'll tell you an interesting story. I was on the phone yesterday with a client of mine, um, a religious order, who's been my client for probably 35 years, I manage their money. And we were talking about how they always want to own individual stocks so that they can file shareholder suits. Or And I was re- we were remembering back to General Electric and they were polluting the Hudson and way back to nuclear plants and Mm -hmm. even blood diamonds. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, it's a way in which I've always felt that I was somehow involved in their journey Mm -hmm. to hold people accountable and to hold companies accountable and to hold industries accountable. One reason I do love working for my firm is because I think they're at the forefront on so many humane issues you know before it became fashionable they were singling out veterans and helping them find jobs clearly we're we're making efforts in low-income communities in minority areas and i jump all over these things because for me they're just openings to bring in people to get them jobs so i you know try and and align myself with what they're doing i think they have a responsibility if the public is giving you money Yep. then you have to do something back for it. And and I think people want to know that the companies they deal with are on the right side of
0: history, morality. Yeah. Jamie Dimon is that leader, I believe. And uh, we've had Joe Evangelisti on the show. Yes. Uh, head of comms at JPMorgan Chase. Uh, I, and I agree with you. And, and I have a very simple definition of a, a leader. A leader is someone you want to follow, right? Like <laughs> there are those who you want to avoid, steer away from. And then there are those that you just, you know, that you're drawn to. And I, I wonder if you have any sort of um, heroes or leaders that you might cite as an example that you keep in mind when you're going through your your daily routines.
1: Well, I always did that with Ace, and it was one reason I loved Ace Greenberg. Mm-hmm. He he used to say, "The more I give, the more I make." And I I understood that he didn't mean that in dollars and cents. And he was such a major philanthropist. What he meant was it comes back, you know, you just do something good and it comes back in even nicer ways. You know, you've you've changed someone's trajectory. You've changed their view of themselves. You've given them opportunities they might not have had. And I look to that. I, I have left companies, which shall remain nameless, where I didn't like the way the leader or the leader that I interacted with dealt with people. And I just thought, I can't do that. I can't. I can't be part of an organization that doesn't value human dignity. And I just saw it and walked away from it. And I think it's one reason I've continued to be a commissioned salesman so that I don't have to really take responsibility for somebody, but I will. If I think someone's done something wrong, I long before, women's rights and the Me Too movement were popular, I would be forever confronting men in the workplace and saying, can't talk to them that way. You can't say that. Or even if they did it about minorities. I remember saying that to someone who was saying something offhanded about a minority. And I said, you can't say that. He said, no, no, there's no one around us. I said, well, first of all, I'm around you and it's not about a specific person. You can't talk that way. It's not okay. So it's always been an agenda of mine to, make people
0: be decent people. Yeah, well, to confront that and to, you can't make people be anything, but you can make clear that it's not acceptable.
1: I don't want to make it a female thing, but I do have to tell you that sure. way back in the day, I'd sit in the executive dining room with the executives at Bear Stearns. And on more than one occasion, somebody would say something and I'd say, you know what, do me a favor, go home and talk to your wife about that. I'm really curious what she thinks. And they would come back sometimes a bit abashed and. I just think people have to know
0: and be reminded what's right and wrong and good and bad in the world. Well, that's a really clever way of getting people over to your way of thinking, right? Instead of shaming and blaming, sometimes we have to be the bigger person or find a more clever way or a more subtle way. And of course, we don't always win, so to speak. It's not really about winning or losing, but it's about doing the right thing. And sometimes the direct confrontation is not the best way. I agree, and I think
1: it's bringing it to someone's attention and saying, I I can't remember how many times in my life I've said to people, that's not okay. And I'm generally criticizing something that was nasty, rude, racist, sexist. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been on the phone in my business, particularly with traders who are, with all due respect, notoriously kind of quick to say anything and foul mouth. And I would occasionally stop them and say, I'm just curious, you're married. Yeah, you know, I have a girlfriend and I would say, and what if your wife came home and told you that someone talked to her that way? Mm. I'm just curious how that would make you feel because I am someone's wife and it makes me feel crummy when you talk to me that way. That's awesome. And I hope I, I want them, you know, I guess I'm always mentoring. So I'm always trying to teach people to be just a little better
0: than yeah. they might. And you're also, I know this is a friend, we've collaborated on things. We care about many of the same uh, organizations in the Hudson Valley where we both uh, have homes um you're also a lifelong learner right you're you're Mm. You're welcome to feedback yourself you thrive you you ask people how am I doing like Mary Koch used (laughs) to do right you're right and
1: I like the local focus I'm starting to think locally more I guess being here full-time and during pandemic it became very important for me to reach out to local organizations and see what I could do you know and sometimes it was just a donation other times it was going to help I think we all have to kind of look around in our own backyard and, and it's a conflict. And she's the first, it was a bit challenging because people would come back and say, why aren't we giving money to education in this country? Why abroad? And the answer was, there are many people giving money to education in this country. It's, a, it's an important purpose, but nobody's giving money to education in these low income countries. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of why I started out. I, I just try and find the people that nobody else is helping
0: yeah and also that concept of leverage applies in philanthropy and and very but, much Yeah. so uh, Gwen, I want to ask you two quick questions um because I'm mindful of your time one is about the role of technology and two is uh, tips for our our, uh, our old and young listeners about career advancement so on the technology front um, how important seismic is it in your assessment about where one goes in his or her life is it is it is critical to be conversant in all these apps and texts, or is it, it's, it's a, a means to an end, any views on tech? Interesting.
1: You know what? Way back in the day I worked at Dun & Bradstreet and they wanted to start introducing computers. They wanted one person to learn and they picked me and I wouldn't do it. I was petrified. I was petrified, you know, and here we are a lifetime later. Look, I'm not on social media in part because I have so many people Reach out to me it's just a bridge too far for me they'll find me anyway Mm -hmm. do we need it anything that moves the needle is useful Mm -hmm. if i want to do a solicitation campaign for a worthy cause i will first send out an email to 150 people i'll then follow up but i'll get it out there Mm -hmm. i mean if it moves the agenda if it gets more people engaged if i'm able to send a video Mm-hmm. that shows the work we're doing. I'm a big believer in that. I'm a big believer, I always have been on, let's tell our story. Let's show them the good things we're doing. So if I can, for She's the First, send a video of a school of ours in Kenya and those amazing young women who are doing grassroots work in the community, that's effective as a tool. So for me, it's, it's important as a tool to do what I'm trying to do and to reach even
0: more people. Mm-hmm. And then Gwen, the second and final question is tips for those in, perhaps in transition. Um, and I'm not even thinking so much about the young audience members, because clearly your work with the, the, the Green Center at your alma mater URI is, is a statement of that, how, to, uh, how that all works. But what about mid-career or later career professionals who've been disrupted by COVID or who are just lost or just disrupted? Any advice?
1: Yes. And I've had those conversations with people who say, I can't stand it. I can't do anything. There's nothing to do. I'm stunned that people don't just go volunteer somewhere, do a phone bank. I, and I had this discussion with somebody who had given up his business. He was looking to transition. He, his days were boring. And I thought, oh my Lord, how can your days be boring? There are so many people out there who they need you to drive around and deliver food to people who have no food. I mean, you think you've got problems, you so. haven't even scratched the surface. You know, I'm giving away things that I, I can't give them away fast enough yep. to places where people don't, where there are immigrant communities, where we live. Yep. You know, uh, Hudson, sanctuary movement, I'm doing all I can to help with the immigrants. I can't. I can't drive around, but I can donate things and have people take them there. Do phone banks, raise money, talk on the phone to a frightened child. Mm -hmm. There are so many ways. And I have to guarantee you that you'll feel better at the end of the day. Because frankly, sitting around wallowing in self-pity doesn't make you feel very good. But boy, sitting around and getting on the phone and helping people who are petrified or have no one to turn to, or help the wonderful stories about the young kids who are helping older people get COVID, vaccinations yeah. they're working the sites
0: but There's then so just following your logic then a you'll feel better about yourself and your reality but then b it might actually open up your thinking or certainly change your your aura <laughs> so when people are no question from you they're going to want to talk to you versus avoid you like the plague and you
1: frankly, and if you want to be pragmatic, you may find that you network and meet people and that leads to something. I mean, you can, it will be beneficial on so many levels. I mean, I never, when I fundraise, think I'm asking people to give money. When I fundraise, I'm giving people the opportunity to make a difference. A and so- I think that's what life is about. You got to be there. You got to show up. Yep. No, well it doesn't said.
0: happen if you don't show up. Well said, Gwen Green. Um, Thank you again for joining us today on The Caring Economy. Any final thoughts?
1: Oh, Toby, first of all, what you do is absolutely wonderful. I mean, I want to be wherever you are, and I want to do whatever you're doing. And I just want to say, you know what, it's a big world out there. Most of us, most of the people who are going to listen to this podcast have been pretty lucky. Mm -hmm. And I think during times like this, we realize how many people are so unfortunate. And whether it's chronic and permanent, or it's just now... Think about someone other than yourself it's the best way to live it's what it's what gets me to have a good night's sleep in the morning it's what gets me out of bed in the next day
0: thank you gwen green ladies and gentlemen thank you toby